John 13, 18 to 30. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is the scripture, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. And from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is... That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went immediately, and it was night. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being called by your name. We thank you for gathering us together here that we may hear your word, that we may render to you the worship that you have commanded. Father, now as your word is proclaimed, I pray that you would do what only you can, open up our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to receive your word for what it is, the word of God and not the word of man. Lord, may it be only truth that is spoken. I pray that you would get me out of the way and that you would simply cause your people to hear your voice as your word is proclaimed. Father, I pray that you would cause this to be a means of grace to strengthen uh, and edify your people. I pray as well that those who don't know you would be convicted of sin and brought to repentance and faith. And Lord, in all of this, I pray that you would be glorified now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we pick up again our series in John. Jesus has now finished his public ministry and has now turned his attention to his disciples. He knows that the time has now come for his arrest and crucifixion. But before he goes, he spends what would have been an unforgettable afternoon and evening with his own. The Apostle John, who was there that night, right next to Christ, gives us an extended look into the heart of Christ toward his disciples in what we call the upper room discourse. Last week, we saw Christ provide an important lesson about leadership, humility, and greatness in the kingdom as he humbled himself and washed his disciples' feet and called upon them to follow his example. Jesus had then declared that all of his disciples were clean, with the exception of one, for one of them was going to betray him. 
Jesus then turns his attention to the betrayer, and as he does, Jesus reveals something more about himself, including another amazing testimony to his own deity. So we pick up with Jesus' words. As he has said, his disciples are clean. He says this, John 13, 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus has mentioned a number of times now that one of his disciples was going to betray him. Now, we have another apologetic point that comes up at this juncture. For as the gospel would go out, as Jesus would be proclaimed as the Messiah, a possible objection could be this. Well, if he is the Son of God, as you claim, or even God the Son, as you claim, then how could he have possibly made such a bad selection that when he was choosing his 12 disciples, he picked Judas? Does that not maybe show a weakness or a failure or an oversight on the part of Christ that one of his closest companions, who he himself had handpicked, turned out to be the worst person in history? Well, here we get an answer to that question. No. Firstly, it was not a failure, Jesus says, for it was the fulfillment of Scripture. The Scripture must be fulfilled. Scripture will be fulfilled. And Jesus then quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, this is an interesting quotation in Psalm 41, because if you would read that psalm by itself, you probably wouldn't have guessed that this psalm contained any specific prophecies that are now being fulfilled. Um, You know, that's how we would typically think of a scripture being fulfilled, right? God made a prophecy or prediction, and then it was fulfilled when that prediction came to pass. Uh, Something like the Messiah being born in Bethlehem is a good example, right? Micah 5 verse 8 says that it will be Bethlehem where the Messiah would be born, uh, and that prophecy was fulfilled as the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. But what we need to understand is that there are other ways to speak of the concept of fulfillment. For example, we can very accurately say that according to the New Testament, Hebrews in particular, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood. Now, when we say this, though, we're not referring to any specific prediction, right? As if the Bible said it in so many words, Jesus will fulfill, or the Messiah will fulfill the Levitical priesthood. But rather... We see that the work of the priest in the Old Covenant foreshadowed certain things. It pointed to certain things. It put on display the need we have for an intercessor, a mediator, someone to stand between us and God. The work of the priest showed the need for God's people to have blood sacrifice, to have atonement made for them so that they could draw near to God. Now, Christ fulfills all of these things. Christ fulfills these things by offering himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. Christ fulfills these things 
as he lives forever to intercede for us in the presence of God. So we see the Levitical priests and their sacrifices were types and shadows of which Christ is the substance, the fulfillment. But you notice that is a different type of fulfillment than a specific prediction. And so that may be what we have here. Uh, as D.A. Carson writes, uh, because of the promise in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, uh, which is where David received the promise that one of his descendants would receive an everlasting dominion. Uh, because of 2 Samuel 7, because of Psalm 2 and other passages, David himself became a type and a model of great David's greater son, the promised Messiah. This did not mean that everything that happened to David had to find its echo in Jesus. Rather, it meant that many of the broad themes of his life are to be understood this way. So the fulfillment language does not require a specific prediction, which then comes to pass. Rather, we see scripture itself speaks of types and shadows. And so what happened to David, him being a type of Christ, would could find its fulfillment in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has been our approach to the scriptures. It is our conviction that if you will simply take scripture on its own terms, you will find that it consistently points to Christ as the central theme. Christ is the fulfillment. And scripture points to Christ in a variety of ways, not simply prophecies, but prophecies, predictions, types, shadows, prefigurings, which point us to him. For as Jesus himself has already declared to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So this theme of betrayal from a close friend was certainly present in David's life. And according to Christ, what happened to David was now finding its fulfillment in him. David was a type, a shadow. Christ is the substance. And so to come back to our previous question, the fact that Christ was betrayed by a close friend, even one of his own choosing, was not a failure. Firstly, for it was a fulfillment of scripture. And secondly, we see that Christ knew from the beginning exactly what he was doing. Judas's betrayal did not catch Jesus by surprise. It does not call Jesus' judgment into question. For as he says here, I know whom I have chosen. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus knew what was in a man. Jesus knew what was in Judas. And he predicted Judas's betrayal even before it happened. And in this, we have another remarkable testimony to the deity of Christ. For as Jesus said, I am telling you this now before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may know that I am he. Now, there are two things that are extremely significant here, and we'll spend some time unpacking this verse. Uh, first is the use of the phrase, I am he. Right? In Greek, 
this is again another use of ego I me. Uh, we've sent, spent some time in past sermons unpacking what this meant, uh, showing that the use of this phrase, uh, particularly if we trace it through Isaiah, uh, this phrase can be shown to be a reference back to the divine name that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. If you remember that account, uh, he said, I am that I am. Isaiah 43 verse 10 says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. If you were to place the Greek translation of this text in Isaiah, side by side with what Jesus says in John, there is a striking similarity. That you may believe that I am he. Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint says, that you may believe, ego, I me. Same phrase. So what we have here in John 13 is another example of Jesus identifying himself with the divine name. Now the second striking feature of this statement from Christ also points us back to Isaiah, and that is the prediction. Right? Notice Jesus says, I am telling you this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may know that I am he. I go, I me. So notice, what did Jesus declare was going to prove that he is the I am, the ego, I me? Jesus says it would be his knowledge of the future that would prove his identity. Jesus made a prediction of what was going to happen, and he says, I'm telling you this beforehand, I'm predicting the future, so that when it comes to pass, you may know that I am. I go, I me. My knowledge of the future proves this. Now, what's really fascinating is that in Isaiah 41, it is knowledge of the future that God declares is what sets himself apart from the false gods, the idols, gods of the peoples. You can turn with me to Isaiah 41, and we'll look at the trial of the false gods. Isaiah 41, 21 to 24. <clears throat> Isaiah 41, 21 to 24, God challenges the idols here, and he says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So what we have in this passage is Yahweh, the one true and living God, challenging the false god, saying, set forth your case, bring us your evidence, prove that you are real gods, do good, do bad, do something, 
Uh, and what are the other things he challenges? Tell us about the past. Right? Tell us of the former things. What is their outcome? What is their meaning? What were they pointing to? Or tell us what is to come hereafter. Right? Tell us what is yet to come. Tell us the future, what's going to happen, that we may know that you are God's. So according to Yahweh, that would be a way for these false gods to prove their true divinity, to prove that they are gods. Tell us the future, what is going to happen hereafter. Tell us before it happens that we may know. You see the similarity, John 13, 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may know that I am he. Now someone might say all that this proves is that Jesus is a true prophet or perhaps proves he is the Messiah. Right? There are many prophets informed by God who made accurate predictions of the future, and that much is true. But notice what Jesus himself said his prediction proved. Not merely that he is a prophet or even the Messiah. He says his prediction proves that he is ego I mean. And as we've seen, that is a euphemism for the name of Yahweh in Isaiah, including its usage in Isaiah 41. What mere prophet could claim that his knowledge of the future proves he is ego I mean? None. And yet this is precisely what Jesus does. So we see again, Jesus is not just a good moral teacher. He is not merely the greatest of all prophets. He is divine. He is God. And so in this Christmas season, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, let us remember we are celebrating the incarnation, the greatest miracle that had ever occurred since the creation of all things. Remember the introduction to John, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Creator, God the Son, the eternal Word, who has been eternally with God, he stepped into his own creation. The word was made flesh. The eternal son of God became a man and was born in a stable in Bethlehem. And so he is truly Emmanuel, God with us. I am telling you this now before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may know that I am he. Let's continue on. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus makes a powerful connection. He says, to receive those whom he has sent, to receive his representatives, is to receive him. And to receive him is to receive the one who sent him, namely the Father. Notice how Christ elevates his mission. Notice how he gives it its highest possible significance and the most binding authority possible, that of God himself. Jesus connects himself here again to the Father. To receive Jesus is to receive the Father. And Jesus' disciples, those whom he sends, are connected to him. So to receive them, to receive the messengers, is to receive him. So to bring this now to our day, who are those who speak for Jesus? Who are these messengers? Who are these representatives? Or we could ask, to whom has Christ entrusted the ministry of reconciliation? Christ has given it to his church. Not just elders, not just deacons, but to the church. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says of the church, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We together are called a royal priesthood. Now again, a priest is a mediator, an intercessor. Among other things, the job of a priest is to represent people to God and God to people. And so we collectively have been given a charge. Matthew 28, verse uh, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are sent out in the authority of Jesus to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And insofar as we accurately proclaim the gospel, we are representing Christ to them. Those who receive the messengers of Christ, the preachers of that gospel, receive Christ. And those who receive Christ receive the Father. This is a weighty calling. We are, together with all true believers on the earth, the representatives of Christ, ambassadors of Christ. And so here's another reason 
why it's vital for all Christians to know the gospel. Here's why all Christians need to know their Bibles. We have all been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. We are a royal priesthood. And so the average Christian can never sit back and say, you know, I don't need to know very much about all of that. You can just just go ask my pastor. We see we all share in this task. And so we must all be able to explain the gospel. To be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. 1 Peter 3.15 So if you don't feel equipped, then come get equipped. Get in the word. Learn theology and doctrine. Come to Sunday school. Come to midweek study. And not just for yourself and for your growth, but also to equip you for mission. To prepare you to answer questions, to make disciples, and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And if you are here this morning and you don't yet know Christ, hear the words of the Savior. If you receive those whom he has sent, his messengers, you receive him. And if you receive him, you receive the Father, the one who sent him. So hear this well. As the church proclaims the gospel, as we preach the word, if we do so accurately and faithfully, it carries the very authority of Christ. And so if you reject the offer of salvation in Christ, know that you are not just rejecting me, which would matter very little on its own, But you are not just rejecting me. You are not just rejecting the words of men. You are not just rejecting the words of the church. You are rejecting Christ. And if you reject Christ, you reject God. Jesus said, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 1 John 2.23 No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. There is no salvation outside of Christ. You cannot bypass him and still have peace with God, still have a relationship with God. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father who sent him. This is why Jews need the gospel. This is why Muslims need the gospel. This is why Hindus, Buddhists, secularists, the spiritual but not religious, the pagans, and everyone else needs the gospel. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Receive today the word of Christ. Turn from your sin. Turn to him in repentance and faith, believing that he died on the cross for sins and rose again and offers forgiveness and eternal life. Come to Christ and live. Let's continue on in our text. 
verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, this is the first mention we have in John of the disciple whom Jesus loved. He will be mentioned again at the cross of Christ, at the empty tomb, at the Sea of Tiberias, where Christ appears to seven of his disciples. And in the final verses of this gospel, we are then told that this disciple whom Jesus loved is the disciple bearing witness to these things. He is the author of this account. D.A. Carson writes, if we were to compare the four canonical Gospels uh, through a process of elimination, we arrive at John, the son of Zebedee, as the most likely identity of the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, to us, this may sound like a rather self-exalting way of referring to yourself in the account that you are writing. Right? Kind of like saying, then Jesus turned to his favorite disciple, or something like that. Uh, but commentators suggest that uh, given John's laser focus on exalting Christ throughout this gospel and the fact that he never actually names himself, it would be better to see this not as arrogance, but as Carson notes, a profound indebtedness to grace. Right? To refer to yourself as a disciple whom Jesus loved could just be a, a wondrous statement, a statement of awe. Right? What a wonder that I should be loved by the incarnate word. And so the silence as the identity of the beloved disciple may be a quiet way of refusing to give even the impression of sharing a platform with Jesus. Like the other John at the very beginning of the gospel, who was the first witness to Jesus, this author is only a voice. The identity of the speaker does not matter. What matters is the witness that he gives. And this provides an excellent model for us as well. To live is Christ. To exalt him is what matters. To see him receive all honor and glory through the way that we live is the target we aim at with all of our lives and all of our endeavors. Anyway, to return to our passage here, Peter asks this beloved disciple who is closer to Jesus uh, to ask him who he's speaking about as he predicts this betrayal. And so he leans over and asks, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now let's try again 
uh, to put ourselves in the shoes or perhaps the freshly washed feet of the disciples. They still have not understood what Christ has meant as he spoke of his own impending death. Right? This just did not seem to fit with their notions of what the Messiah would be and do. And so these vague references of a betrayal were likely equally confusing. Right? Some of them perhaps supposed that this coming betrayal could be someone from outside of the twelve. Or maybe this betrayal would be accidental, inadvertent. Or perhaps the notion of a betrayal did not seem overly threatening. Or you could reason what harm could a betrayal of any sort do to a man who can calm storms with a word? Right? What harm could they do to a man before whom demons cower and flee? A man who can open the eyes of the blind and even raise the dead. Now, whatever their understanding, they clearly did not see this coming. Nobody suspected Judas. Right? For us who know the story, uh, the name of Judas is synonymous with betrayal. Right? To be a Judas is to be a betrayer. Right? So we would almost assume that the moment Jesus mentions a betrayal, all eyes turn and look at Judas. That's not what happened. Judas was trusted. He was respected. Matthew 26, 20, 22, Matthew's account of this same story. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say, one of you will betray me. And they were sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it Judas? No. That's not what they said. Is it I? Lord, is it me? Could I be the betrayer? You see, the disciples suspected themselves sooner than Judas. He was trusted as much as any disciple of Christ. But Jesus answered John's question, dipped the morsel of bread and gave it to Judas. He said, what you're going to do, do quickly. And you notice, even after Jesus identifies the betrayer in this way, the disciples still didn't grasp it. They didn't get what was happening. They thought Jesus was giving them an assignment as the group treasurer, right, to go buy something for the feast or to help the poor. And so in this, we see something significant about false converts. They can really look like true converts. They can look like true Christians, true disciples. And yet we know Judas, way back in chapter 6, Jesus said that he was a devil. Jesus knew those whom he had chosen. So we see Judas is not an example of someone having been truly saved and then losing their salvation. Rather, he was never saved in the first place. Now, that may raise another question, and that is, well, why did he follow Jesus for so long? Now, we're not told. Maybe he was one of those, uh, like among the crowds, who had certain political aspirations for the Messiah. 
perhaps hoping Jesus would deliver Israel from the Roman invaders. Perhaps Judas was slowly growing more and more disillusioned as he realized Jesus was not going to do what he hoped he would do. We're not told. But we know that today also many people do things for the wrong reasons. Right? We could even ask, why do unconverted people join churches today? There could be lots of reasons. Perhaps to satisfy the desires of their parents. Perhaps because being part of a church is easier for them than the stress and anxiety it would cause in their families if they left. Perhaps to have a sense of community in an increasingly isolated and fractured world. Perhaps they find Christians to be kinder, more pleasant to be around than other people they've known. In days gone by, perhaps a desire for respectability within the community. Or as times change, perhaps the opposite. Perhaps a desire to stick it to the man by joining what they see as a rebellious church trying to shake up the status quo. Perhaps they join to network for business contacts. There's a lot of possible reasons why unbelievers might join churches. And so we see the scriptures prepare us that there will be some false converts mixed in among the church. Remember again the parable of the soils. There are those who respond to the gospel or seem to respond positively, who turn away later in life as the concerns of life, the weeds, choke out their faith. Scripture prepares us, for we see examples even of people who ministered alongside the apostles who later abandoned the faith, 2 Timothy 4.10. So we are to be prepared. This kind of thing will happen in this fallen world. And it can happen to people that you never would have expected. Like the well-respected treasurer of Jesus' 12 disciples. But again, these are not examples of people who had salvation and then lost it. Rather, they are people who were never truly united to Christ. They were not his sheep. They had not been given to him by the Father. So do not let apostasy shake your confidence in the ability of Christ to keep his own. Judas was not someone who Christ failed to keep. Jesus knew from the beginning who Judas was. So too with those who leave the faith never to return. It is not that they had salvation and lost it as if Christ had failed in some way. But rather we see they never had him in the first place. Hear the words of Christ to the false converts on the day of judgment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. So notice what Jesus says. 
despite their reputations, despite what even appears to be miraculous ministry, despite the fact that they called Christ their Lord, they claimed the name of Christ, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They were not known by Christ, but then lost. Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, sometimes false converts know that they're false converts. Judas was one of those. But as this text shows, there are others who have been deceived into thinking that they are truly saved when they don't really know Christ. They were not born again. Whatever religious zeal they appeared to have, it was not genuine love for Christ. Now, quite possibly, the hardest group of unbelievers to reach with the gospel are those who think that they're already saved and therefore have no need for repentance and faith. People like this hear the gospel preached. They'll hear a call to repentance. And they will just think, man, if only so-and-so were here. Right? They need to hear this. So they've walled off their hearts. They've got them well defended so that no call to repentance ever reaches home. They assume that they are safe. And so the gospel call consistently falls on deaf ears. This isn't for me. This isn't aiming at me. This is for others. They remain comfortable in their hard-heartedness. Comfortably numb. Convinced they are saved when they are in danger of the fires of hell. And just so there's no confusion, I am not only talking about people out there. I'm talking to you. To the people in this room. To all who will hear my voice. For I do not want anyone who has been self-deceived to simply receive comforting false assurances week in and week out. So please, examine your heart. Are you poor in spirit? Have you truly recognized your need for a savior? Have you ever been brought to the end of yourself, realizing that there is nothing you can do to save yourself, and so you've thrown yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ? Do you mourn? Have you ever been broken over your sin as you began to see it as God sees it? A heinous evil, an unspeakably repugnant offense against your maker, your God. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Not merely a show of outward piety, not merely knowing the right words to say, not merely knowing how to get along in Christian circles. Judas knew all of that. But do you truly desire God? 
Do you see his moral perfection as something beautiful? Do you long for the beauty of holiness? To be free of the burden of your sinfulness? Do you desire to see Christ exalted? To see him face to face, his holiness beautiful to you? Do you delight in God? See, these are things that the unconverted heart does not do. And so these are marks of grace. Things which only the Spirit of God can produce in us. Now, if your answer is that all of this is completely foreign to you, then my friend, you may not be converted. Or perhaps you are converted, but your faith has grown cold. In either case, the call to you is the same. Repent. Plead for mercy from God. Pray that he would kindle in you the spark of faith and would fan it into flame. Pray that you would grow in maturity, that you would increase in grace. Grow to be more like Christ, to hate your sin, to love your God, and to live out your faith. To close this morning, we'll consider one last question. So having seen that the betrayer was in some sense a necessary fulfillment of Scripture, and having seen that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he chose Judas to be among the twelve, we now come to the question of why. Why would Jesus choose a betrayer? The answer, of course, is that everything in Jesus' life and ministry was aiming at the cross from the very beginning. As Joseph was told by the angel Gabriel, the child that Mary would bear was to be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From the manger, through his upbringing, through the choosing of the twelve, and all of his public ministry, everything Jesus did was aiming at this, to save his people from their sins. And in the wisdom of God, the way that he would accomplish this would be through a betrayal at the hands of a close friend, through a mock Sanhedrin trial, an angry mob calling for his death, a bloody execution on a Roman cross, and an empty tomb on a glorious Sunday morning. And so the choosing of Judas is simply another testimony to Christ's commitment to his mission. This is why the word became flesh. This is why God the Son entered into his own creation. He came into this world to be our Savior, to save his people from their sins. Let us rejoice in the wisdom, love, and unspeakable grace of our Savior. Amen.